G'day guys, welcome to Finding Space. I'm your host, Alex Tyson. Today, I'm talking with Daniel Kate. Daniel Kate is the founder and CEO of Funday Natural Sweets, a confectionery company that makes lollies that are actually good for you. Yeah, you heard it here. In today's episode, we talk about Daniel's story getting into the natural sweets space. And I just love it. It's so inspiring. We talk about the experiences he had prior to starting his own business, why he started his own business, what's involved. And it's just a great like founding story. Uh, it really inspired me and energized me to um, just keep doing business and having fun. And uh, you're going to get something out of this one. It's really, really inspiring and really insightful as to how to get a business going starting from absolutely nothing. And so I give you Daniel Kate. Daniel Kate, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me, Alex. Man, we uh, met at a cool entrepreneur event last year and uh, you shared a bit about your story, how you got into doing what you're doing. Um, let's start there. Share with us how you got into doing what you're doing at, at Funday. Sure. So I started Funday Sweets about three years ago now, and the idea behind it is to provide lollies and confectionery in the market that tastes as good as the regular confectionery that we all grew up with, but this time as a better for you option. So focusing on less sugar, reducing the um, amount of sort of artificial sweeteners and, and the artificialness, I guess, of the products that are currently in the market, and actually for the first time ever doing something positive around confectionery. So typically when you eat, you know, any sort of major confectionery brand that you find in the supermarket, it's primarily made up of just sugar and some sort of food acids and colours and flavours. But in this case, what we were able to do and what I was really focused on is actually creating some sort of positive benefit or some positive impact with the confectionery. So it was a process of sort of taking out the sugar, stripping that all out and actually putting in prebiotic fibres, which we get from chicory root fibre and some other really good gut benefits from tapioca starch. So, yeah, I think for me it was about how can we take what's currently in the market and actually turn it on its head and make it better. And the philosophy was sort of if one of the major competitors had to start the business today at the time, say 2021, how would they set it up? So what are the key things that people are looking for? Obviously, you know, the transition to looking after yourself and focusing on your um, diet predominantly has become um, really, I guess, talked about a lot over the last couple of years. And then even as detailed as like pack format. So typically lollies in the supermarket have like three or four lollies per serve, but they come in like a really big packet and typically and people are just eating way more than that because sugar is super addictive. So, you know, we went as detailed as saying, all right, well, what is one serve? Typically, it's around 50 grams. And we created a bag that's just one bag, one serve. And, you know, it's around 100 calories for a lot of people. That was important. So it was really just starting from scratch, saying like, cool, we've got a great opportunity. I've developed a really cool formulation. And now what would the consumer expect from a confectionery brand that started post-2020? We're in a new world. And what's that expectation on us as a business? Mm. Yeah, love it, man. And how did you get into this space? Like what were you doing beforehand and what led you to start a lolly company? Yeah, so 
I studied commerce, but I did a majors of management and public relations. And to be honest, like I'd gone down the accounting finance route and I actually really did enjoy it. Like it didn't excite me at all. And I think I changed my majors like in the last year and ended up like another year at uni just because it was just so unbearable. And I knew because my dad's an accountant, I was like sort of not pushed, but sort of encouraged to go in that direction. And after a while, I just said, it's not for me. And I really, once I changed those majors, sort of just got HDs in every sort of subject and realised I'm particularly good at certain things and not maybe at other things. And then I sort of finished the commerce degree and I was like, what the hell am I going to do? Like I was working at some um, finance company or insurance company and I didn't enjoy that. And I just had spoken to a lot of people and a lot of the people were very successful and it turned out that they'd either studied economics or law and it was just two degrees that sort of just kept coming up and kept coming up and economics was more on the side of the stuff that I'd been doing and I wasn't really interested in it. So I decided to apply for law um, at UWA in Perth and I got in and spent the next three years doing a full undergrad law degree and I squashed that four-year degree into three and I just sort of like got it done and I thought, okay, cool, now what am I going to do? Like I've done commerce, done law, um, but I don't really even love the law. I'm just doing it because I think it's like beneficial for me in some capacity. And I ended up moving to Melbourne straight after I finished my law degree because I had a partner there at the time. And I got in touch with a guy whose name is Adam Schwab and he runs Lux Group of Luxury Escapes and a number of tech businesses and e-commerce businesses. And I started there really shortly after finishing law, but doing literally customer service and sales. And he kept saying, like, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, I definitely do. It's a start. I'm happy to start really small. The business was like 30 people at the time. And I got in there and I just loved like every second of it, even doing customer support or some sales inquiries on the phones. And I ended up spending in total about four years there. And the business went from about 30 staff to about 400 staff in the time that I was there. And I just got these incredible opportunities to manage, you know, 60, 70 people, manage P&Ls of over 80, 90 million dollars, um, manage teams overseas, run businesses. And Adam really gave me those sort of opportunities to really get into business and learn how to run a business. And I recall I kept pushing him every sort of six months as I call. I feel like I've exhausted what I can possibly do in customer service or in this sort of area. Like I really want to run a business and I kept sort of pissing him off about that. <laughs> and then they had bought some other businesses from like Channel 9 that weren't doing very well, they're losing money. And he said, you know, anyone can sort of get into a business that's making money and it's pretty easy because if everything's working, everything's working. You, your job is you can't really stuff it up that much. But with a business that's losing money, that's really hard. That's where you really have to think like how do you, what is going wrong? How can we change it? What are the things that we can do strategically or day to day that can really turn this thing around? And I said, actually, that's great. Like, I'll get into a business losing money and I'll try to turn it around. And I did that for about a year, year and a half. And we got to a point of like just about making profit. It was pretty much break even. And even that process of taking a business, losing a few hundred thousand dollars a year to break even, I learned so much about running a business. I think that's where it sort of just sparked my interest to be like, I want to run my own business because it was all good working in teams, but there were also limitations. Like anytime you work for someone, there's limitations around what you can do. You've got ideas, but it's got to fit into the overall strategy. And I guess what happened shortly after, I was 
bit of a segue, but my wife was studying medicine in Sydney, so we moved to Sydney for two years. And on the way back, I said, oh, but now being four, four and a half years, it's probably time to see what else is out there. And I got approached by someone who was starting up a vitamin and supplement business and partly had some manufacturing capabilities as well. And they sort of said, we've got this great ingredient and these great products, but we don't have a brand, we don't have distribution mm. of anything. And so I sort of came in as the CEO to create a whole business from scratch. I say scratch, but there was a bit of product, there was an ingredient. And I got a deal signed with Chemist Warehouse uh, within about six months and sort of rolled out eight products into Chemist Warehouse. And that was my first foray into that pharmacy space, the actual creating a brand, creating a product, working with agencies, designers, marketing, websites, like all that sort of stuff. And it was really practical experience. And after a year and a half, I got poached by the largest vitamin supplement company in the world, which is Chinese owned. And they had an office in Melbourne and it was about selling a lot of vitamins into China and vice versa, which was a really big thing. Every vitamin brand was focusing on that. And I thought I could try and learn stuff in my own capacity, but I'm going to work in for the biggest and the best. And it's all about China, which is the future. So I did that. And it was sort of at that point where I realized I really don't enjoy working for people. And I started thinking, all right, like, what am I going to do now for the rest of my life? I've got these degrees. I've got sort of random experience, like cross-team, cross cross-functional, cross-business experience in tech, e-com, vitamins, supplements, um, working in Australia, but also in China as well, thinking, like, how do I culminate all this knowledge and do something with it? And I was always trying to come up with an idea and I was come home, my wife would be like, that's the worst idea or that's shit, do that. Um, and I just kept coming up with ideas. And eventually I decided while I was still at BioHealth, that company, the Chinese company, to take a trip to LA and the UK. And I essentially took a weekend off. I think I left on like a Friday and came back on the Monday morning or something like that. <laughs> but the idea was that from the vitamin and supplement space, I realized that I really enjoyed that aspect of healthy eating and sort of healthy living through whether it be a vitamin, a supplement, a food product, any beverage, but sort of that space. And I remember being in, I sort of booked a hotel that was in walking distance from like every major retailer, every pharmacy chain. So I could just walk all day and sort of go and see what's happening in the stores. Meanwhile, this was about five or six months before COVID. So I went to the stores, totally didn't really have anything in mind about what it was that I was looking for, but in the space, and I bought about $2,000 worth of stock between um, the stores in LA and in the UK, and I bought an extra suitcase. And while I was sort of on that journey, I found a product in the States, which was doing very similar things to what Funday is doing now in terms of low sugar, no artificial sweeteners, prebiotic fiber, the serving size as well but tailored towards a very different market, tailored towards a very specific weight loss keto market. But when I tried it, I was like, this is genuinely one of the best, most innovative products that I've ever tried. And I was like, cool, this, you know, I had a priority list of all the products I'd seen in terms of the ideas that I was going to have when I came back to maybe focus on. And this sort of was the number one. And then I went to London and then realized there's really not much there. We're sort of ahead of them. So it was a bit disappointing. But I came back and I was like, what am I going to do? I've got this, this amazing idea that's now turning over. It's a business that's been going for three years in America, turning over $100 million. A few months later, they got investment from TPG Capital 
and got a majority stake in it for $400 million. So I thought this is, from a commercial point of view, a really great business that's a proven track record in the States. We're always a bit behind the States. But the problem that I had is that I'm not a food scientist. I'm not a food technologist. I'm not a chef. I enjoy all that. But this is really technical. And if I started looking at the market in Australia being like, well, who's out there? What are the competitors? What's the landscape? What ingredients are people using? And I just realised that no one was doing this in Australia at that point. And more so, the problem with sugar-free confectionery is that it contains something called sugar alcohols or polyols. So people more familiar with maltitol, sorbitol, and typically in a chewing gum, they use a lot of that um, xylitol, which is a sugar alcohol as well. And everyone's very familiar with, you know, excess consumption may cause and may have a laxative effect. And you don't know until you know, like you think it tastes great. And, you know, half an hour later, you're in all sorts in, in the bathroom. And so I started Googling reviews about brands that were using that. And almost all of them had very low reviews or very low star reviews, ratings, purely because of what it did to their stomach. And I thought, great, like, what if I created a lolly that tasted like what they were used to, but didn't do that to them, didn't have that impact on them. And this brand in America was doing basically that. So I did what any irresponsible, you know, late 20s year old would do. And I just quit my job and thought, if I'm in this, I'm in it 100%. And it was all good until COVID started about three months later. And there's really, what do you do? You know, we're starting to work on formulations with the food scientists and food tech. And then all of a sudden you couldn't go to the lab anymore because they couldn't allow any external people in. But fortunately, what had happened at that point is the recipe had developed a lot, mainly by me at home, using sort of the base ingredients, speaking to people overseas and getting ingredients, buying mold boards on Amazon. And we got to a point where we were like 90% confirmed recipe and that was really good for a vegan recipe and a non-vegan recipe and then the challenge was like who the hell's going to make this product because i sort of had an idea in australia there's very few manufacturers that can do this and i'd spoken to them and even went as far as taking a business plan to their office and saying you've got to make for me and sort of unsurprisingly everyone was like well no who are you you've got no secured volume you're just this small business, inverted commas, you're really just one person, um, possibly give me the volume that we need as a business. So I sort of understood that it was hugely frustrating and you really just needed someone to sort of believe in the vision for what we were doing. And I still have a spreadsheet of about 100 manufacturers globally that I went out to and gave them calls at 3, 4 in the morning just to match their time zone. And, you know, you can imagine Africa, South America, North America, all out of Europe, just constantly until I came across someone on LinkedIn who was the CEO of a manufacturing plant in Switzerland. And I sent her a very passionate, emotional sort of LinkedIn message. And I said, look, this is what I want to do. This is the vision. Can you just give me some time to explain what I want to do? And she was incredible and wrote back and said, yeah, that sounds great. We'd love to talk to you. And I guess long story short, they're the manufacturer that we currently use now. And almost all the other manufacturers are vying for our business at the moment. So tables have turned very significantly um, from that point, but really it took someone to believe in me and also believe in the business from a manufacturing point of view that we could do it. The other challenge is that the minimum order value and minimum order quantity for producing gummies is incredibly high. You're talking 
about 5,000 kilos per variant. And, you know, that's around for us about 100,000 bags per variant. And I want to launch with four products, which was 400,000 bags. And so the problem for me was like, cool, even if I've got a manufacturer and I've got a recipe, like what's my distribution like? And how do I mitigate risk against having 400,000 bags in a warehouse that have a shelf life and, you know, not having them go off? So because of my sort of dealings with some of the retailers and um, pharmacies in the past, I sort of had the samples, met with them, and I said, look, this is the situation. Here's the product. It's the most innovative confectionery product in Australia in like 100 years. But the problem is that my minimum orders are so high that I need a commitment from you before I do that. And that was really tough because they don't normally do that. They sort of say, all right, if you've got a product in the market, it's doing well, it's the right commercials, we'll consider it. In this case, it was you don't have a brand, you don't have a product, you've got nothing. It's also a price point that's well above what people are used to. And there was a lot of skepticism. And to be honest, I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and rocking up to their office and phone calls and whatever. And eventually I got a commitment from Chemist Warehouse to range the four products nationally across their about 450 stores at the time. And I was like, cool, I now have what I need. I have an actual purchase order. I'm going to go now and put in an order to the manufacturer. And that's sort of how the business started literally two years ago in May. Dude, it's like such a good entrepreneurial story that it's just like various experiences, you know, through going to uni and working in businesses and growing businesses. I love the bit about taking on a business that's losing money. I resonate with that. I did the same thing, taking on an unprofitable business with lots of debt and then turning it around. I think that's where the real grunt work is. And then just going and like finding a gap in the market, doing some research, getting on a plane, you know, make it happen. And then bringing in that previous experience with working, you know, with chemists and, and then bringing that in, getting the job, getting it made, you know, finding the supplier, all that. That's brilliant, man. I mean, what a journey. <laughs> and it's just like full power, like just getting it done, you know, from nothing. Well, I think the, the challenge for me at the time was I was on a really great salary before at this um, Chinese vitamin supplement company. And I, because I quit and was very passionate about it and maybe irresponsible, but in hindsight, it's great. The pressure to make it work was intensified a hundredfold. Yeah. So I didn't have, you know, the significant salary coming in every month. We'd also gone into COVID. Just finding basic work was really challenging. Again, for my sort of professional experience, I sort of didn't really slot into a number of jobs people were even looking for anyway. I've got a very sort of niche journey. And what that meant was that this had to work. Like if this didn't work, I was screwed. And it just made how I thought about this potential business as like, Every detail needed to be perfect, looked at, reviewed. And I had all day, every day during COVID, we couldn't leave our house in Victoria to think about this, strategize, write the business plans. So while some people had the most awful experience during even that first year and couldn't really go out, for me, it was the biggest blessing because I had nothing else to focus on but this business, no distractions from anyone. And all I did was just think about this business. Mm. 
it ended up being like serendipitous in a way that it was just so helpful that COVID happened in that time when I decided to start a business. And that can't be said for a lot of other other people and a lot of other businesses. The other thing about, I guess a bit about luck was because we launched in pharmacy initially and pharmacy was almost one of the only places people could travel to without sort of any sort of approvals, mm. we ended up in the channel where people were going to the most over that period of time. And when we launched, we sold out our products in six weeks. And that was A, the product was good, but B, people were going in there, whereas people weren't necessarily going to the Coles and Woolies anymore because they were ordering it online or people weren't going into petrol and convenience, all those sorts of other channels. So really it was a bit of luck that we started there and then ended up in Woolies about six months later when people had started getting confidence to go back into the retailers. Mm. If I had launched in Woolies when I first launched the business, it literally would have failed because there would have been the volume for a new brand where people need to be in store, looking at the product, looking at the front and the back of the product, intricately in the health food aisle, to say, this is a product I want to put in my trolley. Whereas if you're online, you're not really looking for new products. You sort of know, I need my staples, I need my few bits and pieces, but you're not typically looking for a new product. That journey starts in the supermarket, walking up and down the aisles for people. And luckily for us, we weren't there at that point mm. because our performance would have been greatly diminished. Mm. Man, I feel like luck is often on the back of really hard work too. So it, in some ways, it doesn't surprise me that you kind of lucked out in that way but got the right channel opened up right from the start. This episode is brought to you by Found Space, Australia and New Zealand's premium infrared sauna company. Ready to sauna? Ready to take your health to a higher level? Make your home a place of wellness with Found Space. Visit foundspace.com.au or foundspace.co.nz to learn more. Tell me about what's involved to actually make these suites like over in the production facility. How, how do you actually get to a, a healthy Coca-Cola bottle uh, confectionery? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, most confectionery is made up of 90% plus of sugar. And like I said, some food acids, sugars, um, sorry, flavours and, and colours. So our job was to really look at this and say, all right, well, the bulk of it, sugar, if we take it out and the whole point of the business is around sugar reduction, um, how are we going to do this? And the products in the market at the time didn't really solve that problem. So what we did and what I did more importantly was look at the available ingredients in the market that maintain some level of sweetness but also acted sort of as a carrier for the flavours and the colours and whether it's the pectin for the vegan products or gelatin for the non-vegan ones. And it really came down to trial and error of bringing and trying in new ingredients to replace the sugar. So it's sort of like a bit of a recipe in a way of putting in one part this, half a part that, a quarter of a part of that and sort of hoping for the best. So as I knew that most of it was sugar, it was like, let's take it out, let's put in these other ingredients, which I knew were sort of in other products overseas anyway. And I reached out to those suppliers, some of which were in America, Canada, Europe, and they sort of sent them here. In those days, I had to, by those days two years ago, I they were sort of like, we don't know you, you're going to have to pay even for the freight, whereas now it's just give you the products to give it a go. But it's just a taking out of all that refined sugar, the glucose, the dextrose, the corn syrups, and adding in the ingredients that we wanted to sort of go in there and hoping that it was going to work. 
And so we take out the sugar, we put in chicory root fibre, which contains really good prebiotics, and we also put in a tapioca starch as well. And found that that combination in line with whether it's the pectin, which is a gelling agent, or gelatin, which is also a gelling agent, um, really made a great lolly. Um, And so it was just trial and error, probably 100 different attempts to sort of play around with the sort of um, import percentages and then kind of come up with the flavours and the colours that looked like and felt like and tasted like the products that people were used to as a kid. Mm. But then the problem is, and in most cases, in most businesses, in food and beverage and cosmetics, really anything, you can think you've got the right answer, say, in your home or in a lab, because you're doing it in a different environment, different environmental settings, whether it be temperature, humidity, whatever it might be. And then the challenge is that, okay, well, we're working on this mogul line now in a manufacturing facility, and that's got very different set of environmental factors. Mm-hmm. A warm in there, they try to keep it cool, but it's different. So there's starch. So they're all starch molded. So basically it's imagine a pool of just flour and then they put in a mold on top of it and create like an indent of whatever shape it is mm. and fill it with essentially it ends up becoming like a syrup or a liquid, which then sits over a couple of days or weeks, depending on the product. couple of weeks. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it just depends on what it is, whether it goes into a drying room or if it goes and doesn't go into a drying room, it can take days or a week to even cure or basically get to the consistency that you like. And yeah, I think the process was very challenging transferring that from a lab and benchtop to an industrial uh, facility. And it probably took three to four months to really even get it right after that point. Mm. Fascinating. And you probably can't give too much away, but are all these ingredients like just going into a big vat at once and mixed up and then pumped out into the shapes and cured? Yeah, basically it's essentially a big pot of ingredients that go together and get heated up to create what they call like a slurry, which is really just a liquid form of all the ingredients combined together. And it happens in different stages where flavours and colours or other functional ingredients, if you put in a vitamin, get sort of shot into that sort of bigger liquid as it's going into the machine. Mm. For us, it really is a combination of, it's a multi-stage process and it eventually becomes one big holistic sort of slurry or liquid that gets deposited into the starch moulds. So it's not an overly, I mean, it's complicated in the sense that all the environmental factors have a huge impact. The humidity in the room can change the texture, you know, a lot. Um, So managing all of those factors is really critical. But in terms of the cooking process, it's really like following a recipe to make dinner yeah. um, just with typically liquids and powders and heating it up and things like that. Mm. Did you have to change the ingredients like based on, on volume, you know, like is, is making just a couple small pieces like different ratios and things come into play when you're doing big volumes? Um, definitely there's the potential to have to change things from when you go from a kitchen or a bench top into industrial. So for us, we were fortunate that we didn't really have to, but the process is that you would go and create your own bench top samples. You'd be pretty happy with them. And then you'd go and scale up. And even the scale up, you know, it's quite 
it's quite risky in the sense that you have to pay for it to use the machines and the mogul, but then you have to pay for the output. So typically we'll go from a lab sample of maybe a couple of hundred grams. So you sort of get a good feel of what it's going to taste like, feel like texture-wise, and then they go to anywhere between, say, four and six, 700 kilos in the machine. And so the risk with that is, well, if it's not ideal when it comes out, then you have to redo the whole process again. And you go back into the lab, you've got to do that process again, then take it to an industrial trial. And each of those stages has its own cost. Mm. And particularly at the beginning of the business where there's not much confidence that this brand is actually going to order a lot, they certainly charge you every cent because they want to de-risk their own business, and that's fair enough. You sort of develop, and as the business sort of gets more runs on the board and the volume increases, well, that process becomes a bit easier to have because there's a high likelihood that, A, we know the recipes, we know that it's going to work, and we know once it's great, the orders will come in. Yeah. So sort of as the business has grown, it sort of de-risks itself as well by virtue of the success. Mm. Yeah, spot on, man. We're going through a process now. We're, we're about to launch a new sauna in, in a couple of months and um, really complex design. There's nothing else like it. And at the moment, it's quite hard to manufacture. <laughs> but, you know, as the orders start to come in and then, you know, we can afford to improve the processes and streamline it and get that economies of scale in there. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that's very common with a new businesses or businesses coming up with new products. You sort of never, well, I wouldn't say never, but it's hardly a story where people launch their product at the most efficient sort of time or at the efficient cost because you don't have the volume, you don't have the certainty that it is going to work. So you start small, you de-risk, you mitigate where possible. And even for us, like we had to pay a lot more for smaller volumes because there's no economies of scale. We even had to air freight stock initially to hit the deadline that we needed for the retailers. And meanwhile, that's during COVID and air freight went probably eight to 10 times what it normally costs. Plus all of your other one-off costs, like molding, tooling, anything that you do to design a product, you still have to absorb essentially that first order because you don't know if there's going to be another order. So we certainly were not making money in the first couple of orders because you're just not efficient. And that's a real problem for people that don't have, I guess, the backing or knowledge that that is going to happen. And you think, you know, you run your um, P&L, you run your unit economics, you think you're going to make enough money, but you don't really factor in the reality of all of these costs not being efficient from day one. And even to this day, we are still not as efficient as we could be. We have plans in place to reduce costs along the entire supply chain, whether it's from the production, the freight, the packing, the packaging, the warehousing, absolutely everything. We know that we've got a long way to go on our internal costs to bring that down in line with the volumes that we're currently doing. Yeah, man, I think it's resonating with every business owner listening. Like there's just so much to it. You know, there's always efficiencies to be gained and things to be to be changed. Yeah. Um Last thing for me, uh, what countries are you selling into at the moment? We sell to New Zealand um, through Chemist Warehouse there, sell into Singapore and Hong Kong. We've done some stuff into Malaysia, but it hasn't been a huge market for us. And we have a distributor in the Middle East doing primarily Saudi and Kuwait. So 
you know, I think typically in food businesses and beverage businesses, I'm not sure about others, to be honest, but there are a lot of consolidators or distributors always looking to take good products from good countries um, that have great manufacturing practices, whether that be Australia or Switzerland where we get it made, but they're keen to sort of take it into their markets and try and sort of like anything, they'll always put in a first order. You don't know if you're going to get a second order or a third order. And we've been fortunate in most cases where we've got repeat orders and it's growing, but it still probably represents a fairly small part of the business. Yeah, nice, man. Awesome. Man, such a great story. Yeah, it's just, it's really in- inspiring. Uh, and I just love the the approach. It's just making it happen. And man, in life more often than not, that's what you got to do, <laughs> you know. Totally agree. It's just as much time and passion as dedication as you've got, it definitely makes a difference. The persistence, and I know it's very common. I've heard a lot of founder stories, you know, they're more often than not have been told no a hundred times. And I've heard stories of people going to VCs and they go to, you know, 20 and on the 20th one, they get their, they get their money. And there's something to be said for just giving it a crack and not stopping and being really relentless with your passion. And if you have that vision that you want to see, you know, a healthy lolly in the market, but it doesn't exist, well, you can create it. Or if you want to see a new sauna that hasn't been done before, it's absolutely, everything is possible. It's just as much time and effort and persistence as you've got to focus on that project. A lot of people that start businesses are also focusing on their core business. They might have another uh, job and that becomes really challenging. And I sort of understand that because you need the money. Everyone's got financial pressures and whether it's rent or mortgages and bills, but there's something to be said for focusing 100% on a business as well because it has to work. There's no alternative. Whereas there are many stages where you can sort of just say, oh, I'm going to go back to my day-to-day work because I'm getting a good salary and that you lose that sort of passion and underlying motivation for making your work. So I think the pressure really helps. Yeah, man, I totally agree. Like if you want to take over an island when you land on the shores, burn your boats. Yeah. You know, it's no going back. Uh, if people want to buy some of your product, if people want to follow you guys, where can they do that? Uh, well, we've got a website called fundaysweets.com. We're also in Woolworths and most stores now across Australia, Chemist Warehouse at all stores, Ampol, petrol and convenience stations, the fooderies. If you're in Sydney, you can go to Harris Farm. We are also in about a thousand sort of independent health food stores like IGAs and sort of your organic and health food stores. So we've now got about 4,000 distribution points around Australia that people can hopefully find at least one or two products in. Hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you're a busy man. It's uh, been a pleasure. Thanks, Alex. You too. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes.